Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Professor Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the SSI and CBR, Centre for Business Research, podcast series at your Brexit workshop today in Peterhouse College, University of Cambridge. The withdrawal agreement, it's finally been published this week by Theresa May and her government. What's noteworthy about it for you? So what the withdrawal agreement does, first of all, is say that after Brexit Day in March 2019, there'll be, as expected, a, a transition or implementation period. And the key thing to bear in mind here is that following Brexit, until December 2020 or possibly a later date, nothing legally really changes in the UK. EU law continues as before and has what lawyers call direct effect and supremacy. It takes priority over any contrary law. So at least for that period... EU law continues to apply, the ECJ continues to be the final arbiter of the meaning of EU law, and this transitional period, what's more, can be extended beyond the end of December 2020. Now, after the transition period or implementation period comes to an end, the aim is, and this is also set out in the withdrawal agreement, for the UK and the EU to negotiate a free trade agreement going forward. But the assumption is that it will be probably not very straightforward to negotiate this, this trade agreement. And something is needed in the interim after the end of the implementation or transitional period. And at that point, this is where the withdrawal agreement becomes extremely important and interesting. Because it sets out what will in effect be a customs union between the UK and the EU. Take effect after the transitional agreement but before any more long-term free trade agreement comes into force. And it's this customs union, which the Prime Minister, Mrs May, called the backstop to the backstop, which is the, the core of the withdrawal agreement. And, of course, the customs union and the backstop came about because... We're only discussing this because of the Irish border issue, and the Irish border issue is driving the customs union. There's no other real justification for it. Having said that, of course, it has implications for other things, for the way the whole economy works, and in particular for firms operating in the UK. They will be able to benefit from reasonably frictionless trade. Now, the way this works is as follows. The whole of the UK, including Northern Ireland, will be in a customs union with the European Union, meaning a number of things. First of all, within this new customs territory, let's call it, that's, that's the wording used in the agreement, there are to be no tariffs between the UK and mainland Europe, no quotas. The UK will apply the EU's common external tariff, so when dealing with third countries, we continue to apply the common external tariff. And the UK must follow the EU's common commercial policy. And this means the UK, as long as it does that, cannot agree a, a free trade agreement with a third country, with the United States or another third country. So the idea that levers have had that following Brexit, it will be straightforward or possible to negotiate trade deals outside Europe with third countries. This won't be possible as long as the backstop to the backstop remains in place. Those negotiations can begin, but they will probably go nowhere and they cannot be effectively concluded as long as the customs union with the EU remains in force. Now, that's only part of it. Northern Ireland is subject to special rules. So the way to think about this is Northern Ireland is subject not just to this customs territory, but to specific rules of EU law on free movement of goods. 
So in effect, think of it this way, Northern Ireland is part of the single market for goods, and this is done in order to facilitate complete frictionless trade on the island of Ireland. Right. Now, Northern Ireland is therefore subject to more intensive rules governing standards for agriculture and for products than is the case for Great Britain. And this means that there will be some regulatory divergence between the UK and Northern Ireland. Now, all this was done in order to ensure non-reappearance of the hard border in Ireland. No border between Northern and Southern Ireland, yeah. but what about a border down the North Sea so be between careful. Northern Ireland and Great Britain? Be careful how we use words, therefore. So there is, of course, going to be a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Not all laws are going to be aligned. But the point is, there won't be uh, customs checks. There won't be checks on free movement of persons. Part of the withdrawal agreement is that the common travel area between the UK and the Republic of Ireland remains in place. So there are no constraints on Irish citizens or UK citizens moving between the two countries. And because a common travel area continues, it'll be possible not just to travel between the two countries, but also for citizens of each to work in the other country. Now, this is all critically important for avoiding uh, not just customs checks, but a physical border. Now, the border down the Irish Sea, there never has been a proposal for any sort of border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. But the practical effect of having different laws governing standards for products and agriculture would be that there may have to be some checks between goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, or there may have to be, or there will be some sort of regulatory divergence. Now, this is a big issue, of course, but let's, let's think about the withdrawal agreement in some more detail and just what it says on this. What is said is that the customs union, which applies to the UK, is rather like, as the EU has suggested, being in the shallow end of a swimming pool, and Northern Ireland is in the deep end. Okay, But what they say is it's like one swimming pool. They're all inside one customs territory. It's just that Northern Ireland's relationship with the EU is deeper than that for, the, for Great Britain. Okay, Now, it's perfectly possible that the withdrawal agreement will lead to a deepening of the UK's own trading relationship with the EU because what's provided for in the withdrawal agreement is a negotiation of the detail of, of Great Britain's relationship with the EU. So that can be deepened as negotiations continue once the customs territory rules come into force. And I think this is something that we, we may see discussed in, in, in coming days and weeks, just how deep can the UK's relationship get. The deeper it gets, the less divergence there is with Northern Ireland. But it may be that the EU itself doesn't envisage there being a complete harmonisation of the UK's position with that of Northern Ireland for various reasons. So this is what the withdrawal agreement does. Fears that this withdrawal agreement that Theresa May has signed controversially basically makes us a rule taker, not a rule maker, and could lock us into the customs union for many years to come. Is that true? So we're going to be a rule taker in this sense, that rules already in force on labour law and environmental law, for example, cannot be altered if they're still in force at the end of the transition period once we enter into the customs territory, which, which would be the case sometime after December 2020. So there's a so-called non-regression clause, laws in force. These are not new laws we have to adapt to, but laws in force at the end of the transition period. Some of those may come in into force between Brexit Day and the end of the transition period. We wouldn't have agreed to them, but not many. I think the period is too short. Those laws cannot be derogated from. Laws on competition policy and state aids, we have to align ourselves 
ourselves to going forward. So there's so-called dynamic regulatory alignment, laws yet to be made on state aids and competition and things like that, we would be subject to. But we are already subject to them. And as far as labour and environmental laws are concerned, again, we're not being forced to adopt many, if any, new laws. We're just keeping the ones we've got. Now, the reason we have to keep them is the EU says, if you want to get the benefit of free trading goods and no tariffs and no quotas, we don't want you undercutting us by lowering labour and environmental standards. So you've got to maintain the same rules. The point I've made is that the, the deeper the trading relationship between the UK and the EU, the closer the degree of alignment there has to be. In that sense, we're a rule taker. But we're a rule taker for a purpose, which is to ensure frictionless trading goods. So we are getting something back. And in fact, there are many similar examples of international law arrangements where, to some degree, we agree to accept international standards on many, many things. And this would also be the case with any bilateral free trade agreement. There would be obligations we enter into in international law. So to say that we move from being a sovereign state to being a rule taker is not an accurate description of this process. There are many, many examples. This, is, this will just be one of the UK agreeing to abide by standards in international or transnational law in order to benefit from free trade. Is there anything that you think in this agreement we should, as United Kingdom citizens, be wary of? Anything that we really did have to bow down on in terms of the EU asserting its power over us in an improper way. There's been lots of talk about this agreement that nobody's happy with it, Brexiteers aren't happy with it, Remainers aren't happy with it. I assume you've read the 500 pages. It's a dense technical legal document with cross-references. Do you have concerns? It depends what people want to get out of the withdrawal agreement. So it's a very soft form of Brexit in which we continue to abide by many standards governing the labour market and, and the environment. Many people like that, but some people who supported Brexit wanted to use it as an opportunity to deregulate these standards. They would be unhappy. In other respects, people who will be very unhappy, I think, are those who are concerned about citizens' rights because the agreement contains some protections for EU citizens here and for UK citizens living in, in mainland Europe. And these are critical protections. If there's no deal at all, then the position of EU citizens here and UK citizens living in mainland Europe would be very much put at risk. At least this agreement avoids the worst-case scenario. But it doesn't go far enough in, in many respects. And I think one particular problem is it doesn't give UK citizens living in mainland Europe the right to live and work outside the EU host state they've been living in. At the moment, they have freedom of movement, of course. If you're a, a worker, UK citizen working in Germany, you have the right to move to France or Italy to work and to live. You won't have that right in future. So this is causing huge concern that we've under, we're under-protecting UK citizens abroad. And, of course, the rest of us, those who may not be living abroad right now, cease to be EU citizens, will lose significant rights to free movement. So the big loss here is loss of free movement rights for those who value that. This will, on the other hand, presumably please those who wish to see, as a consequence of Brexit, a reduction in migration from mainland Europe. And there were many people, presumably, who voted leave for that reason. So those who voted leave to get less migration would, one imagines, be happy with this arrangement. As I say, those who want deregulation would be unhappy with this arrangement. So again, it all depends what your views are about these issues of substance. And finally, there was a session at your Brexit workshop on the Constitution. Are there constitutional 
implications of the withdrawal bill. Nicola Sturgeon would certainly think so in Scotland. She thinks Scotland and Wales aren't being treated fairly when you look at what's being offered to Northern Ireland. But do you see it as perhaps the first step to the constitutional breakup of the United Kingdom? Northern Ireland is in a way benefiting from special treatment because trade is even more frictionless, if you see what I mean, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and therefore with the rest of the EU. It is possible that this will encourage investment into Northern Ireland. Scotland isn't in the position to benefit from that arrangement. It will, of course, still be part of the UK-EU customs territory, but it won't have the same deep relationship with the EU that Northern Ireland obviously will have because in Scotland over 60% of people vote to remain, every local government unit voted to remain. There's no majority or even close to being one for leaving in Scotland, of course. The Seal Convention, which should have given the Scottish Parliament the right to exercise some kind of veto over the Brexit process, was ignored in Westminster when the Withdrawal Act was passed. And then the Supreme Court in Miller basically said the Seal Convention was merely a political convention, had no legal binding effect. It's understandable, therefore, that in Scotland these institutional events cause dismay. That it's completely clear why they would. And then to be told that Scots won't benefit from this deeper trading relationship with the EU poses fundamental issues for the nature of the union going forward. The Scottish position has been, we'd like to remain, but if we can't remain, we at least want full EEA membership and participation. So this is sure to be a controversial issue. One would imagine that whatever other merits it may have, the withdrawal agreement will not have the support of the Scottish Parliament or Scottish devolved administration. So yes, Brexit here as elsewhere puts enormous pressure on, on our existing constitutional arrangements and begins to call into question the legitimacy of the way in which Brexit has been conducted because significant voices would argue they've been left out of this process. Intuitively, you clearly can't get across everything legally in this document. Do you think it's a good compromise between the EU and the UK? In many ways, well, it's legally impressive to have produced a text of this nature so quickly. The people drafting it on both the EU side and, and the British side absolutely deserve to be congratulated for the work they've done because we do need law to play a role here. Without the enormous effort to put into legal terms this big political shift, we'd be facing a, more, a much more chaotic and difficult situation. The deal that's been offered by the EU is infinitely preferable to no deal. No deal will not just put at risk our economy, but many aspects of social provision, including things as basic as the free circulation of medicines, not to mention other aspects of the free circulation of goods. No deal could easily lead to food shortages may lead to the mothballing of significant parts of our industrial capacity. So therefore, when Toyota and other large companies talk about maybe stalling production while they figure out what a hard deal Brexit would mean, that's not remotely surprising. So this deal is infinitely better than a no deal. But on the downside, it doesn't sufficiently protect, I think, the rights of citizens, in particular UK citizens living on the mainland. It doesn't sufficiently protect labour and environmental rights because a non-regression clause only applies up to the end of the transition period. It's not full, dynamic, regulatory alignment as it has been called. So therefore, the deal going forward 
because it allows some protection for existing labour standards and environmental standards is not as bad as it could have been from that point of view, but nor is it as strong as it might have been because it could have provided for a, a more dynamic, forward-looking alignment of UK law with those standards. In other respects as well, the emphasis in this deal upon the customs territory being a function of the need to avoid a hard border in Ireland is perfectly understandable, but underplays the degree to which we need a customs union with the EU for our wider economy. And I worry that the opportunity to deepen the UK's involved in the customs union, if you like this metaphor, deepening the Great Britain part of the swimming pool, that may be lost going forward unless a concerted effort is made. So in many respects, it's the compromise that was unavoidable with Brexit. Not everybody will be happy as a result of this agreement, of course, but let's accept it for what it is, a significant compromise. Both sides compromise, I think. I don't think this was just the EU's position. They will be very worried that they've given away too much, allowed the UK to take part in a customs union without signing up to the other freedoms, in particular freedom of movement and freedom for services, freedom of establishment. So let's see it for what it is, a genuine compromise, which will therefore make many people on both sides nervous and unhappy, but infinitely better than no deal. And very, very briefly, Theresa May did get her bespoke deal then. So the Prime Minister negotiated a deal which in, in many respects will have disappointed those who heard about red lines, the red line of the ECJ. The ECJ will continue to be important for UK law for many years to come. That seems highly likely. There's enormous uncertainty about where this is leading after the customs union comes into force, if it does. It's most unlikely we'll get a free trade agreement at some at an early point, so the customs union, the customs territory will happen. We are looking at an arrangement that may have been the best available given the red lines which the Prime Minister set out when she took office. So given where she began, this may be the best possible compromise she could have got. But of course other options were open to the Conservative government after the referendum. They could have decided that EEA membership was realistically worth pursuing. They could have consulted more widely and brought in a wider range of voices to take part in a national debate about Brexit. That did not happen. Professor Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the SSI and CBR podcast series today here at the Brexit Workshop. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. Professor Catherine Barnard, if you were a minister and you'd been called into number 10 and presented with this 500-page, dense, technical, legalistic document. She must have brought in her cabinet 15 minutes at a time. Could you possibly have comprehended it? No, absolutely not, because it is... It was a ploy. Yes, of course. I mean, and I've had the advantage of having read and digested the earlier drafts, but, I mean, the devil is always in the detail, and as we know, the real detail, the real issues, are usually buried at the back. So if you're sensible, you don't start at the front, you start at the back and try and work out what skeletons there are in the cupboard in, you know, the annexes towards the end. So, no, of course, nobody could possibly have digested it. We now have got a government summary of some of the key provisions, which will help. And the EU has also put out a a press release trying to summarise it. But this doesn't really get under the bonnet of what's going on. And you really need to spend time in a darkened room with your head in a towel just trying to work out what's in it. And you point out it's not only technical and legalistic, you've got to cross-reference one section with another. And that might be 
as we know with lawyers, a matter of debate. And the debates might go on for not just months, but some years. But the issues and the paragraphs and the phrases and the pages that stand out for you, Professor Barnard, as a lawyer. <laughs> so I'm going to give you my top five. And I mean, lots of people would have different views, but I'll give you my top five. So thinking about it as a countdown, we start with number five, and that would be the provisions on direct effect and supremacy. So direct effect means that the withdrawal agreement itself is enforceable in national courts. So I, as an individual, can invoke its provisions in the national courts, and they will trump any conflicting provision of national law. Now, what's interesting is Direct effect and supremacy are some of the things that the Brexiteurs wanted to get away from, which is one of the reasons why they advocated a vote to leave. And in the earlier drafts, direct effect and supremacy were confined to part two, which is on citizens' rights. Now, in Article 4, you've got this very clear statement that the whole withdrawal agreement is directly effective and, in practice, will take precedence over conflicting national law. That's number five. Move on to number four. Number four, I want to say something about citizens' rights. Now, this is the rights of EU nationals in the UK and UK nationals in the EU. Important stuff, and actually the text hasn't changed very much, which is probably good news. It gives a degree of legal certainty to EU nationals. But there are a couple of things which are buried in there which are just worth pointing out. The first one is that this agreement now applies not just to EU nationals, but also to EEA nationals, that's the citizens of Liechtenstein, Iceland and Norway, the EEA states. And that's, of course, at one level, that looks like good housekeeping. It makes sure that the EU27 nationals and the EEA nationals are treated in the same way. It also applies to the Swiss nationals too, again, good housekeeping. But it is interesting because Article 50, which is the legal basis for this whole document, is about the EU, not about the EEA. So it's interesting they've shoehorned that provision into the text. Also, still on citizens' rights, there's nothing about so-called onward free movement. So UK nationals who are currently living in Spain want to move to France there's no protection for that under the withdrawal agreement. Now, the EU says this is about the future relationship. We'll have to wait and see if anything appears in the future relationship. Political declaration, however, indicates nothing about long-term free movement. It's all about short-term free movement. Finally, on the citizens' rights issue, it also talks about lifetime protection. And that's just worth bearing in mind, because what this is saying is that the rights in the withdrawal agreement to EU nationals living in the UK and UK nationals living in the EU will apply to the last EU national who is born in the UK on just before the end of transition, so at the moment just before the end of 31st of December 2020. And then if that citizen has a child, perhaps when they're even in their 70s, that child will also have the protection under the withdrawal agreement. So you can see the trajectory of the protection can run to about 150 years. And that point hasn't been picked up. So moving on to interesting issue number three, transition. Now, we know transition is usually the dull bit, but of course, remember, Theresa May is desperate to have this period of transition 
And this period of transition is meant to go from the 29th of March 2019 to, at the moment, the 31st December 2020. And in that period, it's pretty much status quo. So people won't notice much change, although those working for EU institutions will not be so fortunate. And of course, the UK will not be in a position to actually influence rulemaking in Brussels. The problem is that most people think that period of transition is too short. Why? Because negotiations on the future deal won't even start taking place until October, sort of autumn 2019. And remember, the future deal, which may run to a couple of thousand pages, if the divorce ran to 600, you imagine what the future deal might look like. It's going to take a lot of time to negotiate that. Most people think it can't possibly be done in that window between autumn 2019 and autumn 2020. And there's finally recognition of this in the withdrawal agreement. There is a provision in the text which says very clearly that notwithstanding Article 126, that's the transition period, the Joint Committee, which is a political committee between the EU and the UK, may adopt a decision extending the transition period up to 31st of December 20XX. Now note they haven't even specified what that endpoint might be. XX. So some people say it's going to be a year, but it could be longer. In reality, we probably need five years. But of course, that's politically sensitive at the moment. It's going to take a long time to negotiate that future deal. So that's item number three. What about item number two? Role of the Court of Justice. You might recall Theresa May said in her press conference on the 15th of November, that was the day when, of course, we had seven cabinet ministers and other ministers resigning. She went on television, gave a press conference and said, ECJ is dead as far as the UK is concerned. Nothing more to do with the ECJ. Actually, that's probably not correct. If you just do a quick sort of search through the withdrawal agreement and you see the number of times the Court of Justice is mentioned, it's well over 70. Now, some of it is to do with transition arrangements, it's clear. But the ECJ will continue to have a major role. I'll give you a couple of examples. It will continue to hear cases from the UK courts asking about the interpretation of EU law in respect of EU citizens' rights, and that will last for eight years after the end of the transition, and also in respect of any dispute resolution mechanism, I'll come back to that in a moment, in respect of dispute resolution mechanism, there will, if a point of EU law is at stake, ECJ has got a role there too. So the ECJ is still very much there. There are other examples too. If you look at, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol, role for the Court of Justice there too. The Court of Justice has not been erased from our national collective experience. And remember, of course, we won't have a British judge at the Court of Justice. Finally, institutional provisions. Again, I accept not terribly exciting, but what we really see in respect to these institutional provisions is a shift from what's called supranationalism, where you've got a supranational body like the Commission acting in the interests of the EU, to much greater intergovernmentalism, where states and the EU both fight to represent their own interests. And so where we see this is the key body in interpreting and applying the withdrawal agreement is the so-called joint committee. Now this is a political body which will act by consensus. 
The Joint Committee will be supported by a number of specialist committees looking at areas like citizens' rights or the Northern Ireland Protocol or Gibraltar. But the Joint Committee is the linchpin to interpreting the withdrawal agreement. And what we know also is once the Joint Committee is set up, it will also be the main body for resolving issues which have occurred under any future deal. So what's really striking is that this Article 50 agreement is really the template for the future arrangements as well. What happens if the Joint Committee can't sort out a dispute? The other major change that's been introduced by the Withdrawal Agreement text is an arbitration panel that's been set up. And the arbitration panel, each side will nominate five respected people, and then, so there'll be ten in total on the arbitration panel, most panels will sit with five. If the arbitration panel is faced with a matter of EU law, then the matter goes to the Court of Justice. But the key issue is that what we're seeing in the institutional arrangements is it makes the withdrawal agreement look much more like an international agreement rather than anything that we're familiar with from the Treaty on the Function of the European Union, the EU agreements, or anything really like parts of the EA agreement. I'm Alison Young. I'm the Sir David Williams Professor of Public Law at the University of Cambridge. Alison, we're going to take a look at the Constitution Am I right in saying that the UK doesn't have one unified constitution? That's right. It's right to say we don't have a unified constitution. So you couldn't go even to the wonderful Squire Law Library, find a document saying UK constitution, pick it off the shelf and read it all the way through. What we have instead is a combination of legal rules, political practices, conventions and case law. And all of those together work together to tell us more or less what the UK constitution is in certain areas. Now... That UK constitution, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, how are they wound up into it, the devolved regions? So we have a series of Acts of Parliament that set out what we call the devolution settlements. So we have the Scotland Act 1998, which has been amended on numerous occasions, the Government of Wales Act 2006, which has also recently been amended, and the Northern Ireland Act 1998. And they set out various devolved powers, mostly now through a model where the devolved legislatures are able to legislate in certain areas, apart from those that are reserved to Westminster. So that's all done by statute, with oversight by the UK. Supreme Court to interpret those statutory provisions. Brexit. How does Brexit impact on these various legislative bodies, the devolved bodies throughout the UK and the UK itself? Okay, in terms of Brexit, because our membership with the European Union is a reserved matter, so it belongs to the UK, it has meant that Westminster, the UK government, has been the main body to carry out the negotiations with um, the European Union. There have been what we call sort of meetings, so we call them IGCs, where there's been meetings between the governments of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland with Westminster in order to bring elements through, but this has not necessarily always worked as 
as well as we would have liked it to have worked. So Nicola Sturgeon doesn't think so. I think that's a fair reflection and there's been quite a lot of difficulty and a, a big lack of transparency in these meetings and these discussions, which is why we've led to various elements of tension. So there have been debates in the devolved legislatures on aspects of Brexit. We did have policy documents that came through quite early on in the Brexit process from both the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, which set out the direction they would want it to go in. And I, I think it is fair to say that these have not necessarily been fully always taken on board in Westminster. Do we know the constitutional implications of the withdrawal bill? Or is it too early to say? That's a leading question, isn't it? Because <laughs> we really don't know what's going to be passed by Parliament. But are there any early indications of how triggering Article 50 on the 29th of March next year, us brexiting the EU, will impact on constitutional rights? Okay, I, I will try my best. We have one piece of legislation already, which is the European Union Withdrawal Act, and that is basically there to deal with essentially what happens if we leave with nothing. And so that was the idea to try and maintain the continuity of European Union law so you don't end up with all these regulations stopping and they become part of what we call EU-derived law, which are then incorporated in, into English law through sections 2, 3 and 4 of the European Union Withdrawal Act. And that's all ready to go. Obviously, those sections are meant to come into force on exit day, um, which we have defined in the legislation as 11 o'clock at night on the 29th of March 2019, and they will all trigger then. The difficulty that will arise is now we have a withdrawal agreement, we have to think through how we implement the provisions of the withdrawal agreement into English law. And some of the aspects of the withdrawal agreement will contradict what we have in the European Union Withdrawal Act because that was dealt on a no-deal basis and now we have a potential deal, so we have to then enact further legislation. There is no draft legislation that is publicly available of what has been referred to either as the WABE, the Withdrawal Act and Implementation Bill, or what has been referred to in a white paper as the European Union Withdrawal Agreement Bill. But hopefully once the dust has settled, we've had the statement on the 25th of November with the further aspects of the agreement from the meeting with the UK and the European Council, then we'll have this element of being able to understand precisely what that further legislation will be. People use a term called grandfathering, which means that when we Brexit the EU, we have been reassured that all the rights we've gained from being a member of the European Union won't be lost because all of the legislation that's yes. been passed in this country mm -hmm. as a result of EU bidding yes. will be protected. Mm -hmm. It will be grandfathered yes. and we will still work post-Brexit yes. from the legal framework that we have. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our constitution... Is there an element of grandfathering in that? Are rights protected? Yes and no is, is, is probably the <laughs> wonderful answer to most things in the UK constitution is yes and no. That's what 2, 3 and 4 of the European Union Withdrawal Act is doing. It is grandfathering. It's taking a snapshot of all the rights we had in EU law at a certain time, so exit day, and saying these are now part of UK law through these particular provisions, so the rights get preserved. 
The reason we say yes and no is obviously some of those we can't preserve. So a lot of the rights we are used to under European Union law, some of them are ones that we can replicate in the UK. So if we look at things like our employment rights, you can replicate those in the UK because you have UK measures that can bring them in and you can rely on UK law to give you the same employment rights that you would have had through EU law when you're working in the UK. But if you think about it in terms of what about my right to go away and travel to France and have a lovely holiday and use my lovely health insurance card so that if I do fall ill, I don't have to worry about paying for hospital treatment, emergency hospital treatment. They rely on France recognising my right to travel through EU law. And obviously that's not something the UK can replicate. So those kinds of rights that rely on the other countries to give them to you can't be grandfathered in the UK and they're the ones that if we leave with no deal will go and they're the ones that we're trying to negotiate as to going forward how will they work so the idea of the current withdrawal agreement is those rules and the ones we have in the UK will continue until the end of implementation period but we're not sure what will happen beyond that that depends on the negotiations of the framework of the future relationship and whatever future trade agreement we have just to make it even more complicated you have a further set of rights that we we sometimes refer to as club rights so these are ones that you have because you're part of the european union so i can vote for a member of the european parliament for example that is Obviously, because you're a membership of the EU, that will go. The rights of EU nationals living in the UK to vote in municipal elections and stand for municipal elections will go. And the withdrawal agreement that we've been talking about in the, the sessions today has made it clear that they do go. So they are not preserved during the implementation period. And all the um, UK nationals who are working in the European Union or who are members of the European Parliament, they cease at the end of exit day, and they're not part, that's not part of the implementation element. So can you name three issues, constitutional issues, and these informal rights that we've been granted as EU citizens that you're concerned about post-Brexit, post-triggering, and leaving the EU? I think, for me, there are aspects of things like environmental rights, for example, because they're important not just be, in, much as you can replicate them in the UK. A lot of our involvement with international agreements at the international level to protect environmental rights is, is, has been done through the EU. So I think, and there are um, statements within the withdrawal agreement to maintain standards of environmental protection. The reason I'm concerned about them is just practically you need lots of interactions with other countries to maintain those, and you need sort of elements of, of regulations to maintain those. So even though you can maintain them in one country, to maintain them fully globally, you need further elements. So I think it's very complicated to unpick those. Um, Travelling rights, so what we, we're so used to moving and living in other countries, and there are lots of guarantees in the withdrawal agreement to guarantee citizenship rights. So the members of EU nationals who are living in the UK and UK nationals are living in other EU countries. The withdrawal agreement is very good at... at giving a good protection of those, a long-term protection of those rights that you've derived. Because you moved before we left, you'll then be able to, to keep them. And the withdrawal agreement is keen to keep those. Obviously, without a withdrawal agreement, and if we end up with no deal, then they will disappear, and that, that does concern me. I think another 
concern from a constitutional law perspective is we are so used to being part of rule makers and not just rule takers and I know that was a big concern of a lot of people who wanted to leave. There's a perception that we take these rules from Europe and we just have to deal with them. But while you're part of Europe, you're part of that law making process. From exit day onwards, even if we leave with this withdrawal agreement, that goes and constitutionally that is concerning because obviously you want to have a say in the development of these rules and, and to, to realise that you are going to be in a position where you're not going to have that say constitutionally is a concern. We have a much applauded 2010 Equality Act yes. in Britain mm -hmm. and yet equality rights are often those that are challenged at an EU level. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to those post-Brexit? I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> so one issue lawyers have is the Equality Act is a UK statute. So it is a statute that will remain in force in the UK. Aspects of it were to implement EU law, other aspects are not. So some of it is EU-derived law, some of it is not. So its status is quite difficult. As a statute, it has the same force as any other statute in the UK, so it can be repealed long term. But it, it's still there and will still remain there afterwards. There are various aspects in the, we leave with no deal under the withdrawal agreement that are designed to protect equality rights, particularly procedural protections if you're going to bring in laws that are going to in some way remove equality rights. If we leave with, under the Withdrawal Act, then all the EU law will continue until the end of the implementation period and that will continue to protect equality rights going forward. If we end up in a situation where we can't agree, so we have the protocol, which is the kind of what we're referring to as the kind of backstop element, and there are long-term, so we end up with no future deal, and we end up in the kind of default backstop position, then there are provisions in the protocol to the withdrawal agreement that will provide stronger protections of equality rights. So we're in a usual kind of, I can't really answer the question until I know where we are, but there are different aspects of aiming to try and protect equality rights in different types of scenarios. But obviously it wouldn't be exactly the same as we are used to because EU law can work as a constitutional backstop and can disapply legislation that contravenes EU law. And that element will remain during the withdrawal agreement in the implementation period, but after that, on the default, probably will remain. It's a bit complicated, but if you end up with another form of agreement that doesn't protect that, then that constitutional protection will go. Wow. I mean, that's a lot to take into <laughs> consideration, really, and, and a lot for the lawyers to mull over for the coming months. The Withdrawal Act 2018... It gives powers to the executive, and people talk about the Henry VIII clauses, which means that the government can alter legislation without putting it to Parliament. Is that something that concerns you, or has it been overhyped? It does concern me. The reason it concerns me is because of not just the fact that the Henry VIII clauses are there. I understand why they do need to be there. We, if you look at the amount of measures that you will have to bring in just to make these technical changes, I, I understand why Henry VIII clauses are going to be needed to bring these through quite quickly. The reason we get concerned about them is because it can be very hard to delineate between a tiny technical change that you think is constitutionally okay for the executive to make. So, for example, taking away the word European Union Commission 
who you might apply to for a license, then replacing it with appropriate minister who you apply to for a license. Those are technical changes that you can understand why the executive will want to do. With wide-reaching consequences. Absolutely, and that they, are, they do have massive consequences, but they also involve all sorts of policy changes. So which minister takes the decision has all sorts of policy implications going on in the background. How the minister will admit, will take that decision has all sorts of policy consequences going on in the background. Default position is most of these measures are taken by negative resolution. So they're laid before Parliament. Unless someone stands up and says, no, thank you, they are voted in. There is our scrutiny committees within Parliament who can look at these measures and say, oh, we think these raise policy issues, we want this to go to affirmative resolution, so Parliament has a say and has to vote in favour of it. The reality is that is dependent on getting time in Parliament to have a full debate and full scrutiny and full discussion. And practically, that is going to be very, very difficult to do with the, I think it's estimated sort of a thousand or so measures that we're going to have to come through quite quickly. So the concern is not so much that they're there. The concern is, will there be sufficient democratic scrutiny over these policy choices that will have wide ramifications going forward? And even with a committee there to try and rescue these, some may fall through the gaps, there may not be enough time to go and scrutinise these policy choices and as a constitutional lawyer that is very concerning. And that affects people's rights of course. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's in some ways you might think, well, it's just a tiny technical change. Why, why does it matter? Well, there can be all sorts of knock-on consequences of having to redo forms, work out who you apply to. All of this is going to involve aspects of costs which have all sorts of knock-on consequences. To deconstruct what you've said... Doesn't that prove the Brexiteers have a point that we're already too meshed into the EU and we need to take back control and gain sovereignty? Mm -hmm. Will we, when we Brexit, have greater sovereignty in terms of the constitution? Okay, I'm, I'm back to the classic constitutional answer of yes and no again. The big issue for a lot of people has been this concern that we have all these rules at the European level that are made in Europe, they come into the UK and because EU law can override UK law, it cuts off policy choices and can override UK legislation. So I can see where the concern was coming from. Going forward, do we get that back, it depends on an, an element of different scenarios. So yes, if we leave with no deal under the provisions of the European Union Withdrawal Act, then the, the supremacy of EU law with regard to new laws coming in stops. So you will be able to take back control and enact new laws in that sense legally. The question is politically, economically, would that be a sound thing to do? And that's an issue for politics to go away and evaluate these choices and work out whether that is the right thing to do or not. You then have to think about what about during the implementation period. In the implementation period, under the current agreement, we are a rule taker. The EU laws during that period, including those enacted up until the end of the implementation or transition period, become part of UK law. And again, there are provisions that you, if you have UK law that disagrees with these rules, they are disapplied. And then going forward, all those rules would then be, be become 
and it sort of intermesh with, with English laws during that implementation period and we'd have to decide what we do at the end of the implementation period with those particular provisions. If we end up with various default positions, then again there are all sorts of guarantees in the backstop. I was just going to say a default position that's held the whole negotiations Absolutely. up is the Northern, Ireland, the Northern backstop, Ireland backstop, which... Yes. If Northern Ireland is given privileges, disadvantages Scotland and Wales, something Nicola Sturgeon has pointed yeah. out. Yeah, it, it is complicated. It's because I can, I can understand where she's coming from, but there are, there's also understandable concerns as to why that's there, and that's because of the different nature of Northern Ireland. It will be the only place with a hard land border, and it's also the only place with a hard land border which has got used to an all-island economy, so they're used to things flowing, and obviously it's incredibly important against the backdrop of the Belfast Agreement and the whole history of the troubles in Northern Ireland, that we deal with that separately. So much as it is odd to have this Northern Ireland but not Scotland and Wales, it's understandable given the unique position that Northern Ireland is in. And do you see that being resolved? (laughs) That's the $10 million question. I can see where it's coming from with regard to the resolution. The the aim of the backstop is to try and resolve that as best we can by having this idea of the UK-wide customs union as the backstop with element of greater alignment with regard to Northern Ireland than you might necessarily have with regard to the UK, with regard to trade elements. Whether that is politically acceptable is very, very difficult because there are so many different political viewpoints on this particular issue that I, I think... In essence, there is no perfect solution to the question. This is what we have. We then have to work out whether it would be politically acceptable or not. I mean, that's quite a list. And it's a lot of... A big list, really, for a voter to take on, isn't it? If a voter is concerned, say, about the EU, deliberately, or just as a side issue, wanting to break up the UK, a border in the Irish Sea rather than between Northern and and Southern Ireland. You can suddenly see the four countries slipping apart. You've got to acknowledge that, haven't you? Absolutely, and I think this is one issue, and this is where Nicola Sturgeon is quite right to raise concerns. There are other issues, not just with Northern Ireland, but there are also deep issues with regard to Scotland. So another big constitutional issue that is being decided at the moment is we have a UK-European Union Withdrawal Act, which was enacted without Scotland's consent. So there's no legislative consent motion from Scotland with regard to this piece of legislation. Scotland has enacted its own version, which we refer to colloquially as the Scottish Continuity Bill. That is being challenged before the Supreme Court at the moment as to whether that is constitutionally valid legislation. And Scotland differs substantively. So the Scottish Continuity Bill, for example, would be preserving the Charter in a way that the UK's Withdrawal Act does not. It also differs procedurally with regard to aspects of when EU power comes back from the EU to the UK. Does it land with Scotland or does it land with Westminster? And there are lots of tensions and there's a disagreement between the Scottish Continuity Bill and the UK Bill as to how you determine where these powers land. And that's why there is this case going up to the Supreme Court to decide whether Scotland had the power to enact that. Whatever happens, whichever way the case decides, there will be quite large political ramifications which will land where they fall and 
that will also put further tension on the union. So it takes a really vague situation, i.e. the UK constitution, which, as you said, is more political than legal. We are moving away from the European Union, therefore the existing conventions will apply no more, and we've got to work out through trial and error what will apply post-Brexit to our constitutional rights. Do you think perhaps it's time to write down a constitution for the UK? I'm not 100% sure that would solve all of these issues. So two reasons. One, you have to, even if you write down a constitution and put all these things into a constitutional document, you are never always in a position where you have an absolute solution to every single possible question that will arise. So there is no automatic, wonderful solution of write it all down, it will answer every possible question. I don't think there is any constitution um, in the world that will answer every single possible constitutional question that will come up. So you will still get some of these issues, some of this vagueness and some elements that will still need to be decided and you'll still get political practices that arise around the constitution. Two, I don't think this is the right time to sit down and write a constitution and that is because we are in a situation where we had a referendum that was fairly close in terms of percentages, even though I know there was, I think it was, a, I can't remember the precise number, I think it was around a million or so difference in the numbers of the vote. So you have a situation where you have a country that is quite divided, where lots of these issues are taking all, all sorts of further ramifications, and it would be very, very difficult to come up with sound constitutional solutions that are divorced from these tensions and these issues at the time, which means you might end up with a constitution that is geared for particular polemical situations, but which isn't necessarily geared long-term. So I think it wouldn't necessarily give you the answer. It isn't the right time, but I, I can see why there are more and more calls to move towards a written constitution through a constitutional convention process with bigger discussions and deliberations in the hope that when we have these issues in the future, there will be more certainty and clarity as to how to resolve them. Well, thank you. Finally, you've given of your time generously, for which I thank you. But again, the Brexiteers raise concerns about the European Court of Justice. And I know in the transition period... Uh, the UK will not have anyone sitting on the ECJ, I think. That's right. <laughs> Does that concern you? Should we be banging the table to say not only will we be a rule taker and not a rule maker, but if there is a need for arbitration and the ECJ, actually we won't have representation either? I think it is a concern that we don't have representation on it, but someone has to decide these issues and there needs to be some legal body. So it, it's, it's with regard to the CJEU, it's, it's got a, a number of different roles at different time periods. So it will still have jurisdiction over the UK in the implementation period. Under the withdrawal agreement, it will still have jurisdiction in over state aids for four years after the end of the implementation period and over citizenship rights for eight years after the implementation period. And then there is a special special joint committee that has been set up to deal with issues from the withdrawal agreement and where there will be UK representation as well as EU representation and this joint committee will resolve things together. There is a process to go through international arbitration and then there is the backstop of the Court of Justice if there cannot be the resolution. So there will be UK representation on that joint committee. So it's, we're not completely unrepresented, but 
within the implementation period, yes, there will be the CJU without a UK Advocate General and without a UK judge. Might not this whole period of Brexiting the EU and us beginning to realise the complexities of our own constitution and our constitutional rights, might not it give forth some creativity and, and some pondering on really, well, we, you know, this is too grey. We should have more discernible rights. We should understand our rights. Come on, really, sort of trial and error and just patching together a, a constitution isn't good enough. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I think what tends to happen with most constitutions is constitutions are written in response to what we lovely constitutional theorists call a constitutional moment. So, for example, you'll point to things like the collapse of former Soviet Union, which then led to different aspects of different countries then establishing their own constitutions in response to that. So you have some moment or some crisis, or you point to the American Revolution or the French Revolution that leads to these kind of constitutional moments that develop a constitution. We have had a kind of series of historical evolutions, developments, modifications, and we tend to modify our constitution without having to push to a crisis, but finding a solution through developing conventions, through introducing new laws that find a way out of a crisis pragmatically and, and end up resolving it. And some people could look at our constitution and say, well, in some senses, Brexit has shown up as strength as a constitution because it has allowed us to think through flexibly without pushing to a complete crisis. But on the other hand, it's pointed out a huge weakness that there is this uncertainty that if you're not careful, that will then mean it's decided purely by power rather than also an interaction of constitutional principles. And there is this huge lack of clarity and things need to be done very quickly. And so there are dangers of having these solutions just being developed in a sense ad hoc and, and to resolve different crises. And, and maybe you're right, maybe now is the time to take a step back and say, is this our constitutional moment where we turn around and say at the end of everything with Brexit, now is the time to sit down and work out some clarity of how to go forward. A Royal Commission? Maybe a Royal Commission. If it was me in an ideal world, I would like to have a process where you don't just have a Royal Commission looking at it, but you also have what we call the Constitutional Convention process, where you involve the people and have a, a discussion as to the values that they would want promoted in that Constitution as well. Professor Young, thank you very much indeed for talking to the SSI and CBR podcast series today at our Brexit workshop. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.